we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. We usually talk about science and medicine and COVID things, but that's really a starting point for things that we might actually cover. If listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Mr. Paul Thacker. Mr. Thacker is an American investigative journalist based in Spain and former fellow at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard. Mr. Thacker has written on scientific ethics for various media, including the New York Times, the British Medical Journal Investigations, Journal of the American Medical Association, Washington Post, the New England Journal of Mendacity, the Los Angeles Times, New Republic, Slate, and, and Mother Jones. He also spent several years in the U.S. Senate investigating corruption and conflicts of interest in science and medicine. And he has a Substack column at, um, I, I, I didn't write it down here, so could you remind me of where, it's the disinformationchronicle.substack.com, I think, is that right? The Disinformation Chronicle, if you just Google that, you'll find it. Right. Oh, okay. So, Paul, let's start. What have you been thinking about lately? You know, I'm kind of at a point right now, you know, where I think I don't know, like, if I think if the rest of America has moved on from COVID, but like, you know, I'm still still looking into a lot of this stuff. I mean, we just had some more a new story just broke about the fact that there was a Chinese researcher who um, had the the COVID sequence weeks before it actually was made public. She uploaded it into the NIH's, um, um, uh, I think it's called GenBank, in uh, late December. Um, So it was two weeks, 15 days ahead of time. You know, and, you know, could that have helped, you know, helped us prepare faster? Um, I don't know. But the one thing that was kind of buried down the Wall Street Journal piece, which I'm writing about, is um, this woman who, uh, you know, she's a Chinese researcher, she's in China, um, she actually was being paid at the time by the National Institutes of Health. So she was on a grant um, that was awarded to Peter Daszak at the EcoHealth Alliance, which is this weird nonprofit that takes in all this money to do go out and you know collect viruses. And then they, they were saying they weren't manipulating in labs, but they were, you know, they're supposed to save us from the next pandemic. And, you know, Guess what? You know, the pandemic starts in the back, right in the city where we have a lab studying viruses. You know, it's like maybe this research isn't helping, you know, but, you know, it just came out that that happened. And I'm still looking back at more and more issues. You know, I'm going to write a piece. Um, there's been a couple of essays that were put up at Scientific American saying that, you know, the Cochrane review on masks was wrong. And I looked them up and they're totally false. They're totally based on and, and paragraphs that make assertions that link you back to studies. Those studies don't say what is asserted in the article. <laughs> so the footnotes well, don't that's, right. That. right. That's part of that's part of the manipulation of uh, of the, the media with when you don't have the actual evidence, you pretend that you have the evidence. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. And so, I, you know, so here we are. Right. We're four years after the pandemic. And I'm kind of at a point, I was, I've been sort of concluding this over the last year, like, we really haven't learned anything. I mean, 
you know, the, the, Oh, actually, we have. We've learned a huge amount. The question is, what are we going to do with everything that we've learned? We we haven't motivated us to change. When you say we haven't learned anything, you're saying that we somehow we're still stuck in the bad institutions, but we've well, learned why yeah. they're bad. So my whole thing when I, you know, that I sort of figured out, because like the first year of the pandemic, you know, it was very easy for me. Why My wife's a physician, but we just had a, a daughter, so she wasn't at the hospital and, you know, it was very easy for us, you know, when, when we did the lockdown, it didn't matter because my wife is very introverted. She doesn't want to leave house anyway. So she didn't leave the house for 43 days. We had a lockdown that lasted, you know, almost two months. Our lockdown ended in Spain because the um, Spanish Pediatric Association sent a letter to, to Parliament saying this is dangerous for kids. Like this is harming children, this lockdown, you know, so that's what ended it there. So it was very easy for us the first year. And then. At the end of the year, I just started questioning a lot more things. I was like, you know, how did this pandemic start? Like, you know, do these masks really work like they're telling us, you know? And then and then when the vaccines came, I remember when the first story came out about the vaccines, it was on the front page of the New York Times, the Pfizer interim data, and it said 95% efficacy. And I was like, huh, that was the headline. It was on the front page of the New York Times. And then I read down like six or seven paragraphs. And that's when you realize like, wait, hold on a second here. This is just a press release. No one's seen the data yet outside of Pfizer. Like you guys put up a press release and the New York Times ripped it and threw it out there, you know? And so here we are, like, I feel like four days later, like still discussing, like, how did the pandemic start? You know, we're still arguing about these vaccines. We're still arguing about masks. And now, like more and more evidence is coming about about the dangers. Or I was, well, I say the side effects of these lockdowns, which surprise, surprise, every medical invention has has side effects. But we pretended that didn't happen. So I just feel like we're kind of at this point where, like, if we would have had, I think, honest discussions and debates from the beginning, we would not be in this place where we are right now. where We're still like, you know, arguing and yelling about things and confused about what happened. Well, I agree. I think there is a fine line between trying to run a war and trying to manage how you run a war. And somebody's got to take responsibility. And usually you trust the generals to win the war. And if the generals don't win the war for you, you know, then you, you court-martial them or whatever, but you're still stuck with, with having to have a chain of command. That doesn't apply to public health, except to say that our public health infrastructure is a military branch as you know, the Surgeon General is a general, so to speak, in a military right. of public health. And so we've militarized the idea of having a public health army that's going out there to perform public health tasks. The problem is that the Surgeon General didn't define the tasks that be needed needed to be done. The, um, the, the National Security Council did that when it was handed off the task of managing the, the emergency six days after the emergency was declared. And I wondered for the longest time why that happened. But now I know after reading about the bio warfare industry and why they saw this immediately as a bio warfare agent that they called exactly that. They didn't call it a virus. They called it um, a bio warfare agent and they didn't call the vaccines vaccines. They called them countermeasures because they put this in terms of the bio warfare industry that has been going on for 20 or 30 years in this country and around the world that has been something that has very severe ethical challenges that has been maintained under the flimsiest guise of 
desirability for the country to do, regardless of what other countries have been doing in, in this sphere. And that, and basically what happened is it came back to haunt us. And, and for, for example, for any biowarfare agent that's infectious, it, you cannot basically control the infection. If the infection itself is very limited, then that may limit itself. But if an agent is very infectious, as COVID, as SARS-CoV-2 is, you cannot control it. And so there's no point in inventing something that you can't control because if it gets out, you can't use it. Because if it gets out anywhere, it gets out on your territory also. And so one of the things, you know, that you bring that up about this biowarfare is, and I don't, maybe your reader, your, your listeners know this, but average people, I didn't really know this, honestly. So like, I mean, just so you know, when I worked um, in the Senate from 2007, 2010, I ran a lot of investigations about the NIH. It was mostly about their um, uh, sort of uh, the um, grants that, you know, that a lot of doctors were getting, you know, at, at the time, all this stuff was in the front page of the New York Times. You had uh, Charles Nemiroff at Emory. Uh, you had um, the chair of psychiatry at um, Stanford. You had um, chair of psychiatry at Harvard, a bunch of people at Harvard, um, people at um, University of Minnesota, about these people like these ties to industry that were being undisclosed. What I did not know at the time, um, because that was not what I was focused on, was NIEID and how that you know, had essentially been turned into a biodefense program housed with inside the NIH. I don't think most people even know this. Um, and but if you go back historically and you look, it was all very clear, like after 9-11 and anthrax, you know, that this this shift that happened as money poured into NIEID, Fauci was very happy to take it. Um, he, you know, he, he, he even talked about it quite a bit. There was a letter that went out, I want to say in 2006, signed by, I think, several dozen scientists actually even complaining about the fact that the NIEID had totally shifted their focus, uh, their portfolio had totally shift, shifted. And I just think if this, this pandemic had started off, if we would have, if Fauci would have gone on national television and been described as, you know, head of biodefense at the NIH, I think we would have been having a very different discussion in America, you know? Well, that's right. And and in fact, that's why he got a doubled salary, because he took on that additional role to the tune of some $65 million over 10 years of, of funding for that role from not NIH sources, but from DOD and BARDA, DARPA, the, you know, the multi-letter acronym agencies uh, from on the federal government. And, you know, my problem with all of this is that there were major discussions about the propriety of doing biowarfare research for these um, aggressive, uh, offensive weapons. Well, Harvey, in you know, the, Harvey, in the area of 2014. You're not. You're not. You're not allowed to use the word biowarfare. That right there is like a no go. Um, the way the way you're supposed to talk about it, according to the NIH, is biodefense. Right. They 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 force you to use this word biodefense, which I think is hilarious because I'm like, OK, you've essentially taken an AR-15 assault weapon and you've now called it an AR-15 defense weapon. It's the same weapon. Right. It's a, it does right. the same thing. You just you just give it a new name, you know. Well, right. So uh, what you're saying is that the same rifle can be used uh, in dual use. 
Exactly. Now, that's what that's what they did. They called these agents dual use agents because if it's only an offensive agent, then that it has a, a moral hazard to it. And so they called them dual use agents so that they could make supposedly small quantities of the stuff so that they could make countermeasures for the stuff that they had invented. Right. And of course, right. you cannot make small quantities of an infectious agent because if it gets out, it's no longer small quantities. <laughs> and and of course, it, it was engineered to be infectious. There's no question that SARS-CoV-2 was an engineered virus that was engineered on purpose to make it infectious to human lung cells. And the, and the, the technology for doing that is all in the public domain. It's all described. The smoking gun evidence is all out there. There are sequences in the virus that only exist in Moderna patents from three years, four years before that there's that nowhere else on, on the planet are hundreds of thousands of organisms in the NIH BLAST sequence database. So there's no way that this was not an engineered virus for the purpose of what I think is, is these insane scientists are doing this because they can. They think, why not invent something because we can? And then, of course, we can write a paper and get the next grant funded to figure right. out how I we mean, can suppress it. It's part of it. It's funny. It's like the way you bring it, like the way I was trying to explain, I was trying to understand it is, you know, I had a buddy of mine when I was in college, he was a, a chemistry major. And anyone who's been to chemistry and you know chemistry grad school, I think at some point in time they've made some kind of bomb of some sort. You know, it's just like a thing you do, and that's what I feel like. But like those bombs, like if you take if you take you know um, you know uh, sodium, I think is what it is, and then you throw it. You know, people make these bombs with sodium. You put it in like one of these um, two gallon jugs, and you take it and you throw it into a into a uh, buddy of mine. Th they throw it into a pond and it blows up underwater, right? I mean, that's right. that's fine. You're screwing around. You know, something bad can happen. But what they're doing here is so dangerous, you know, with this virology research, which they just, you know, no one's allowed to talk about it. You can't say these things. You know, I'll tell you one thing that I actually did here, um, which and I've heard this from several scientists and actually some people inside the State Department. They don't think that this um, virus was designed to be a bioweapon. They think what it was, was it was designed to be, um, if you look at part of the Diffuse um, grant that came out, there's a portion of it, it's, it's almost science fiction, right? Where they talked about creating these viruses that would then go out and pre-infect the bats, right? Um, and so they think that this, this virus may have been created as a carrier for like an antigen to like, to, to basically like almost as a vaccine, so a virus to serve as a vaccine. That's what some people think that they were trying to do. Okay, um, so that's refuted by the fact that the gain of function addition to this virus is specifically tailored to infect human lung cells. Oh, oh no, 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 I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm talking, I was talking, I, I mixed two things up. That was in this part one, one part that I'm saying, like th there, is, there is this idea that like, we're gonna create a virus, like that was in the diffuse proposal. We're gonna create a virus that's gonna infect bats to, to uh, basically vaccinate them, right? Well, right, I know, I, I know that it said that, but why at this point, knowing the subterfuges that they used to try to get grants by misrepresenting what they were doing, why would yeah. anybody yeah. actually believe that? I have no clue. I mean, I don't, I'm just telling you that's what some people thought that was going on. That was the intention is that they were not trying to create a bioweapon. They were trying to create a, um, they were trying to create a, um, a, a virus that could serve as a vaccine, like as had been proposed in the diffuse um, proposal. Now, the other thing 
um, that I've also heard, and I haven't spent enough time on this. This is for also from several people who are like behind the scenes on this stuff is that when this virus got out, it's not that the virus escaped. What escaped was, you know, they, I, I believe the China, China's virus is, it's an attenuated, it's a ten, their vaccines, an attenuated virus, right? Isn't that what it is? Uh, um, I, I, I think, think it was. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know exactly how they attenuated it or how the attenuation process works, but that they didn't attenuate it enough. And so when you gave the vaccine, the person converted to infected and, you know, they had a, they created a bioweapon. And then the first thing you have to do is create a countermeasure. So you need a vaccine. They're in the process of creating the vaccine. Someone converted. And then that actually pushed the virus out. Uh, I don't know enough about the molecular biology to speak to that well. I'd say that it, it, a vaccine doesn't have all of the parts of the virus in it. So even even a um, a virus that's, that's um, attenuated, usually by heat or chemical means, has its genetic component, and it has the parts of the virus you want to control, its genetic component added, but it doesn't have the one the complete genes of the virus you want to control. Okay. So, so it, it doesn't seem likely that that would work for actually making the virus you want to control, putting that out into public infection. I see. I don't. I don't think that would that would work. I don't think you can do that. I think you can take a a, um, a virus that that's been disabled and re-enable it by chemical by other chemical or biological means but uh, you know and maybe that can happen by mutation also that may have been what has happened in the incompletely killed polio vaccines that have been leading to polio cases right. now in other parts of the world because they used a killed so-called killed virus uh, that isn't quite killed and, right. and you know that in theory that's possible but i don't think that's what happened here I think that this was clearly invented uh, to be what it actually did and just got out and, and formed epidemics in places that became a pandemic. Why, well, why? actually, we've got we've got to a place where let me just interrupt for a sec. We, we have to, to take a commercial break. We, we got to one of those points. So let's come back very shortly. So everybody, please stay tuned. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. 
Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Mr. Paul Thacker. And we were just discussing about how the virus got out. Um, Paul, you had mentioned that the genetic sequence was described a few weeks into December before we or the Chinese admitted to knowing that about this. I think they knew. I think they were covering up for months. I think they oh, yeah. knew that something was happening since September, October, which, yeah. is, which is the critical period. I think right. that the people from the World Military Health Games in Wuhan got infected and spread it around back to various countries. Um, these infections, what, the dynamics of pandemics when they start is it can take quite a while before you actually see something that, you know, the one makes two makes four makes eight can happen, but it can take weeks for that to happen. And not even in a very infectious virus, not everybody transmits that way. It depends on people's behaviors. And so it can take quite a while to actually see what's already been seeded in a population. And so you don't actually recognize it for a while, even though that's what's been happening. Well, I think the only thing we do know, I mean, I, look, the, the main thing that I've always said, the biggest evidence that we have that something went haywire in Wuhan in that lab, it's not necessarily so much the direct evidence. It's it's the 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 mountainous sort of accumulation of lies that people have been caught in. It's like we've caught them repetitively in lies. And so, okay, so ask the question. Right. Why? What exactly. is, what no, is exactly. the necessity of lying to cover right. up? Right. I mean, there's only there's only two things they've been covering up, right? One was that they knew what happened, right? And then the other one, the other possibility, right, the less sort of ugly possibility is that as soon as this outbreak happened, Fauci was like, oh, my God, we're funding stuff in that lab. Our money's going there. I don't want people asking questions, right? So you don't want anyone asking questions, you know, and so you divert attention away. So they were diverting attention away either because you know, we're funding that lab. We were funding scientists in that lab, right? Not just, money wasn't just coming in. They were on our payroll. Their their salaries are on NIH grants, <laughs> That's right? right, and DOD and, and, and so on yeah. also. That's like yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we're funding that lab. And so they don't want people asking questions. Because like, then the next question is going to be, wait, why are we funding this lab in China where we think this thing happened? Like, what's, what is that about? You know, so those are so, the two possibilities. Uh, so I agree, but I think it's bigger. I think... It's not just that NIH and Pentagon, DOD, have been funding this lab in China. It's that they have been funding the whole biowarfare industry for decades, independent of what the population, what the president, for example, you know, um, in, in 2014 had, had said, uh, what Obama and the and the pause in, in the gain of function research and so on that they've been doing this for such a long time that they have such a strong interest in protecting the image of this of doing good and once this got out it wasn't just that we were funding this we've been funding so much that could could have and could still lead to even more damage to the country and the world that they felt the need to cover up the entire spectrum of everything, all of the bioterrorism warf warfare um, research, they felt had to be covered up and minimized in order to keep people from asking the question, why are we doing this? Why are we funding it? Who authorized this to be funded? Who's responsible when it goes south? Right, yeah. I mean, the, the latest thing that came out of the, the House hearing was is that you know Fauci has no clue 
Well, he says he has new. I, I can't believe anything at Fauci. He's been caught lying so many times. I'll tell you something. When he testified in front of the Senate and Rand Paul and then wagged his finger at Rand Paul, when I worked in the Senate, I had on several occasions sent letters out warning people about lying and what the penalties are for lying. The one in particular that I did was um, when we got some information back from Emory University, uh, we sent a letter directly back to Emory within two days warning them about lying to us and what they'd, the information they'd sent to us. I found out later the general counsel at Emory panicked. He freaked. He'd been a former federal prosecutor and he, he, they, he flew up from, from Atlanta to come talk to us about the letter we'd sent. And he's telling me, he's like, you know, I used to be a prosecutor. I used to prosecute on that statute. And when I saw that letter, like accusing us of a thousand and one, and I was listening to him talk and I said, look, this stuff isn't that hard. You don't need a, you know, a PhD in bioethics or a law degree or anything. Your faculty member has lied, okay? I mean, what do you do when someone lies? The night manager at Taco Bell struggles with these issues. You know, it's not that hard. You know, they, people try to make it complex and academic, you know, or like, well, this is complicated. Like, did Fauci really lie? Like, what's going on? I mean, any average person who had, who had behaved that way, we'd say immediately this person lied. But because it's Anthony Fauci, it's this, you know, it's this you know, August researcher, you know, who's been around forever. Then we, suddenly we get we get stupid and we get complicated. It becomes very complicated about what happened. But it's also it's actually quite easy to know what happened. The guy's been lying. <laughs> That's what's been happening. You know? It's right. And and not only has he been lying, but he's, it's demonstrable because the Menachery papers in 2015 and 2016, during the gain, the pause in the gain of function research, stated that in the acknowledgement sections that their gain of function research was approved by NIAID supervisory personnel. Right, right. And then also, like, it came out, the emails came out, you know, where... Fauci was was told like early in January, he was told early in January, we're funding research in Wuhan through Equal Health Alliance, you know, and then that then there's that email that came out on February 1st after he and and he's saying, you know, like, you know, whoa, people are really freaked out. This virus doesn't look normal. Something gets engineered, you know, and they're also concerned on top of this because we know that they're doing this type of research in Wuhan. Then he turns back around and he's um, February 9th. So eight days later, right? He's on Newt Gingrich's podcast <laughs> and Newt asks, asks him about, you know, about the uh, where there's these rumors about what, you know, what's going on in Wuhan with this bioweapons research. Like and he's like, Newt, you know, we've heard those conspiracies before. And like all conspiracies, Newt, they're just conspiracies, you know? So they just created this, they flooded the zone with conspiracy, 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 you know? But they conspired so against us. They conspired right. against us by labeling us conspiracy theorists. <laughs> that's right. That, that that's exactly right. You know, I um, uh, Pierre Corey has an essay and on I think it's on his Substack out today, yesterday or today, talking about the use of the disinformation playbook, which right. is a document that was created by the tobacco companies in how to manage scientific information that is damaging to your product sales, to your case. And he divides it into a number of categories of the types of, you know, one is to mount fake studies, one is to, to criticize real studies by having a, a third party say they're, they're poor quality, it can't be trusted, can't be relied upon, and, and, and so on. All the, these manipulations, rather than actually dealing with the science 
at the bottom of everything that has to, to be understood. And, and Fauci is a master of this. Fauci has been, has been doing this throughout the whole pandemic, pointing to things and misrepresenting them. When hydroxychloroquine, when I published a paper in May 2020, looking at the evidence for use of hydroxychloroquine in outpatients, somebody asked him that on TV. He waved his hand dismissively away and said, it's anecdotal, you know, which was right. a code word for him of junk science, which is actually a lie, you know, because anecdotal has a technical meaning in science and epidemiology. It means study of one or two or three people, not study of 50 or 100 or 1,000. Right, so right. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you the one thing that I, you know, so I've spent a lot of time, a lot of my career actually delving into corporate, you know, disinformation, how it works. You know, but what happened is I first started off, I was at a, a science journal called Environmental Science and Technology, which is the top journal in um, environmental science. So what I used to always say is everyone who has an ESNT paper thinks they have a science and nature paper, but they actually have an ESNT paper because like that's the next step up. It's like, you know, science, nature. Um, and, you know, so that was when I first started learning about how, you know, dis disinformation works because in the, the way the chemical industry works. And then I, you know, I, I started, I found the links between how tobacco became climate change, you know, like all those, you know, all the, all these guys like branched onto the next thing. And then you see like how it works in the chemical industry. And then when I worked for Grassley, I went to go work, um, on issues involving corruption in, in, uh, in, in, um, the pharmaceutical industry. And the thing I can tell you about the pharmaceutical industry, it's so much more complicated in pharma because, I mean, in pharma, we have like, I mean, you know, I wrote this law called the Physician Payment Sunshine Act. So you can look up doctors to see like who's paying them because that's so critical to how how disinformation is done in the pharmaceutical industry is paying off doctors, getting doctors on your side. The only thing I can tell you is in biopharmaceuticals, it's super complicated, way more complicated in these other areas. Now what's happened now with this pandemic is we have this other layer going on, which is the federal government involved in regulating social media, right? And we know this has happened because of the Twitter files that have come out. You know, I've still got some more Twitter file stories I'm gonna be writing. Um, documents that come out from Facebook, from the litigation by the attorneys generals. And we can see very clearly that these federal agencies are putting their thumb onto information to label it disinformation. And, you know, a classic example was this, you know, this investigation I wrote for the BMJ. It's got the third highest score ever for alt metric in science, right? So huge. And, you know, it was an investigation that relied upon, you know, documents from a whistleblower. So there's not, it wasn't interviewing anyone. I was reading emails, you know, there was private conversations that were being recorded and that went in the investigation and it came out fact check wrong, right? And then we find out later that Facebook had cut a deal with the White House that they would label things. And they said, even if it was true, so even if true, it gets labeled, right? If it goes- right. the Oh, missing context. Uh, oh yeah, missing right. They, right. They said, yeah, they said missing context. And I remember when that came out, my editor at the BMJ called me. And she's like, "Well, Paul, what do we do?" I'm like, "I'm like, I like read the first thing. It says, did the BMJ blog?" I'm like, "It wasn't a blog. It was like an investigation that was in peer reviewed." I'm like, "What is this garbage? I don't have time for this." And I told my editor, I said, "Do you know how there's no problems in that piece? Because if there had been any problems in that piece, I ran investigations for the United States Senate, and the people I dealt with." were the lawyers from the big law firms that were working for GSK, Pfizer. So I've sat across the table for them and dealt with, dealt with them. If there were any problems in that thing that I wrote, 
you'd have had a letter within 24 hours from the general counsel's office, right? From Pfizer. You never got that letter because there's nothing in that they can point to. Right, right. Nor are they willing to risk opening up anything in public. Right. Yeah. So what they do is they go around it, right? They go to their Facebook fact checkers and then you find out. So like, here's something else. Here's something interesting I found out in the Twitter files, right? So Twitter began labeling um, vaccine misinformation and disinformation in late 2020. They put out a policy at that time. In March 2020, guess what they did? They began working with their client, Johnson & Johnson, to help them to market their vaccine. <laughs> so, so Twitter was simultaneously labeling mis- and disinformation on vaccines while simultaneously helping a corporation to market their vaccine. Like, there's no way they were going to be doing that. Which, which, which side do you think they're going to take? <laughs> right, of course. Uh, of course. And the, so the question is, were these media, uh, social media people doing this because government was in bed with pharma or because government was protecting something else? I think it was, I mean, what we're seeing now is like there's more information coming out right now. A lot of these, you know, pharma companies were working directly with the social media companies. You know, then they're going and they're lobbying the government and then the government's telling something else. You know, the main thing that I think was being pushed is, regard is that they were what they were promoting was Biden administration policies. And the Biden administration policies were mandates, right, or what, it, vaccines and, and vaccine mandates. And so, you know, it's not shocking that anyone who stood up and asked questions that at about those administration policies were being told they're wrong. Now, what I think is so weird about this is that, like, isn't it just like, it almost feels like it's weird to say this, like, like we're back like centuries ago, but like, how is it you can't question your government? Like, that's like a basic job of newspapers, but the newspapers are now promoting the government message. It's weird. Well, this is a, another whole long conversation that you could speak to as a journalist, which is that people go to journalism school and get converted into activists. So instead of being journalists, they're activists for causes. And they think in terms of moral superiority of their role in supporting their causes, rather than in objectively trying to identify objective facts and write about things as they are in the real world in, in existence. They write about the real world the way they want it to be, not the real world the way it is. Yeah, um, one of the things just like, I don't, you know, I, don't, I know you probably want to get back on something, but just to help, you know, the listeners understand, because they probably don't hear many people talk about this. The problem we have um, in this area where the people who are writing mostly about these policies and stuff, they come out of this world called science writing. Um, and the main thing you know about science writers is they really love science, right? They love science. And so part of the problem is they're science activists. And what they want to do is they want to kiss up to the people who are in power. In this case, you know, during, you know, during this COVID pandemic, it was Anthony Fauci and people at, you know, certain institutions who were the favored, you know, voices for the administration. Uh, I, I just, you know, the way I think the easiest way to think about this is, you know, who becomes who becomes a music journalist, right? It's the guy who likes to hang out with the band, right? He wants to hang out with right. the band backstage, right? Right. And so what do you expect they're going to do? Like, are they going to really tell you like how these people are? Are they going to tell you like that concert's awesome and this is great? So that's what you get out of science journalism. You get a lot of cheerleading, um, a lot of like, let me call these scientists up and ask them questions. And in the pandemic, the way we saw that come out is you saw stories come out 
that were that had a certain narrative, but they totally were in opposite to like documents that had come out because the reporters weren't going to read the documents because then, right, you're going to have to ask hard questions of your sources, which which they just didn't do. They never did. That's right. Yeah. So so to answer my question as to whether the government was suppressing social media because of pharma interests, supporting pharma interests, I used to think that, but in the last uh, few months, I've been converted to thinking that the government was supporting its own interests in protecting the biowarfare industry. And that was it, why it, the whole thing, the pandemic was militarized and why the government was doing this and the benefits for pharma was only a subsidiary that, that yeah, pharma I mean, was a partner, I, but not the reason. I can tell you like of the reporters who went into the Twitter files, you know, and some of us that have had conversations at first, we thought that the government was like telling like that Twitter was basically doing whatever the government wanted to do. Right. I mean, and, and then you realize that Twitter was pushing back sometimes and it became very hard to tell, like, who was really in control? You know, I mean, was was Twitter telling the government like what we're going to do or is the government leaning on them? The problem, of course, is that Twitter, like any social media company, you know, they have a lot of things in front of the federal government. Like, you know, they've got financial issues, you know. And so when a push comes to shove and the government's like, well, we want you to do this, you know, what do you think they're going to do? <laughs> right. The, the threat you know? to them is very real, even if it was unstated. Yeah. They they oh, knew yeah. what the threat was. Yeah, I can, that's right. I, I, can give, I can give you one example. This I haven't written this story yet, but I'm going to be writing this. Um, there's internal documents from Twitter that show that, um, you know, India was leaning heavily on Twitter. Okay. Uh, because what was going on is if Twitter, um, we, there's a guy, um, very right wing in um, India now, Modi, who's like super pro Hindu, and he's coming down on a lot of like ethnic um, religious minorities. Um, and so it's, there's a lot of Hindu nationalism. And Twitter would like, you know, would, if Twitter would host these people who are opposing, you know, the regime in power, what the Indian officials, was, they would show up at the Twitter officials houses and arrest them. There's a real issue over there in India. And so what Twitter did, their response was, guess what they did? They then began lobbying the State Department, right, to help them with India, the same State Department that was telling them what to moderate. So, like, how was Twitter independent? They were totally reliant on the State Department, you know, well, to help. It, it's true. It's true. It's true. And they were do and you know, of course, in China, they're totally dependent on pleasing the Chinese government. And and it happens everywhere in, in totalitarian and semi-totalitarian regimes. Well, we've gotten to a, another commercial breakpoint. So let's take a pause. We'll be back very shortly. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. America Out Loud News was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. 
For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Mr. Paul Thacker. So one thing I wanted to talk about today um, that's been on a lot of people's mind is Disease X, which I'm calling a work of fiction. Well, and it is. It is. <laughs> and and uh, and I'm asserting that the problem with disease X is that we're being manipulated with all the messaging to be concerned with managing it when it happens, as opposed to that we should be concerned with preventing it from happening in the first place. Well, did you did you did you see who the first author was on the Lancet piece about disease X? No, who was that? It was someone from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> well, right, right. You know, the, the messaging for Disease X has been from WHO and the World Economic Forum, which seem to be, you know, hand in hand. Uh, and, and certainly Gates supporting, being a part of one and supporting the other in a, in a major way. Doesn't surprise me, but again, we're being fear porn, fear you know, fear propagandized to be afraid of something that doesn't exist. To think that it could exist because it exists in our imagination, like we went to a scary movie, you know, about pandemic, and we're afraid of this movie in real life, and and nobody's paying attention to the fact that this is not going to come out of an animal reservoir. If such a thing were to happen, it would be another leaked bioweapon. Right. right. And the question is, why are we still having bioweapons facilities doing right. research with leaky facilities doing this around the world? If China, for example, were to leak a, a major bioweapon, as described in Disease X, I would consider that an act of war. That they've been warned. This is a, this is a, a, a crime against humanity to be researching on things that you can't control, that you have a history of not being able to control, that have leaked out of your labs, and that you know has a potential to do to kill millions of people around the world. I'll I'll tell you what I think is going on. I just saw some tweet out, and I don't know if this is going to happen or not. That they're going to have like, um, you know, they're right now doing this COVID inquiry in the UK, which is a bit of a whitewash from what I've seen. Um, there's there's now some discussion about that Canada might do the same thing. Nothing's happened at all in the United States. We've got this House committee that's trying to investigate stuff. It's it's very haphazard. You know, it's 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 only the Republicans. The Democrats don't care. Apparently, don't care about you know what happened during the COVID. I think a lot of this disease X stuff is a way to distract us from the fact that like 
the, the way this pandemic was handled was so screwed up and we haven't sat down and had an honest like national discussion about what you know what was done why were certain things done you know wh why for instance like did we, like we order like we not have ppe and then we ordered huge amounts of pp that are now being thrown out you know well, that's we okay because pp doesn't do anything well, so right, that, that, that might be part of it, you know, but I, I just I just think that like there's so much discussion out there about the next crisis that distracts us from the fact that like we haven't sat down and just kind of like, OK, guys, what happened? You know, because I'll tell you something like I did not even think about a lot of these things. You know, I, I, I can tell you what happened with me like, OK, so um, in Spain, um, because Spain got Pfizer. I got, I got, I got fight. Like, I, it's so funny. Like when I wrote my piece for the BMJ about how screwed up Pfizer was, my wife was finishing up her PhD and I told her, I'm like, honey, I'm about to go into a pit. I've gotten all these documents. I'm going to be like two weeks in a, I used to know how it is. So like 12 hours a day, yeah, two weeks yeah. going through everything to write this investigation, make sure everything's sound, get it past the lawyers and everything. And she's like, she's like, which vaccine is it? And I'm like, she's like, I'm like, it's Pfizer. She's like, that's the one we got. And I was like, oh God, I forgot. I just forgotten. Like <laughs> I put out, I just like, I mean, my wife's a doctor. I just like, what time do I go? What do I do? I just do it. You know, I'm a typical man, right? I don't think about these things. And right. then, you know, and then at the end, you know, after I'd had Pfizer twice, that's when I started paying attention because I don't know like what was like about, you know, how there was really, you know, an age profile on who was getting sick about how, you know, how how there was these, you know, adverse events showing up in younger males. And I start calculating like my age and my fitness and where I'm at. And then and then I got then I got COVID and I'm like, okay, that's that's three exposures. I'm done. I'm not going to go back. If they ask me for a booster, I'm not going to do that in my age with my health profile. I don't feel comfortable doing that. But I but prior to that, I hadn't thought about it. Then the other thing that happened is when I got COVID, I'm trying to go see my in-laws, right? And they're elderly because they're my in-laws, you know? And so I need to get a COVID test. Now, I didn't know until I started reading about the COVID tests that the PCR test, you could be PCR positive like months afterwards, which I didn't know at the time. But then I was looking at it and Rochelle Walensky finally came out and admitted that, the head of the CDC. And I was That's like, right. why did I do this before, you know? And those are not false positives. They just indicate you had COVID at some point before. And these are residual little fragments of virus still in your nose. Right, exactly. So then I'm kind of like at a point, I'm like, okay, well, what do I do to like get a test to know if I'm like actually like a virus carrier? Not that I'm like, I've got like virus fragments that are like still in my nasal cavity. You know? Right, you can't go see your in-laws for months. That's right. Exactly. I mean, it was nuts, you know? I mean, this was when it was all like, you know, it was 10 days. I'm like, okay, 10 days and done. And my wife's like, no, you need to be tested. And I'm telling my wife, who's a physician, but she's in a she's in the NICU unit where they're not dealing with COVID. You know, I'm like, but honey, you know these PCR tests, like they don't work. I could be positive for months, you know? So I just felt like so much of the information we got was just wrong and rolled out poorly and without any real discussion. It was like, just do this and that's I mean, the latest thing was this six feet where Fauci came out and said <laughs> this came out of nowhere. You know, I mean, this came out of nowhere. And then I looked it up and Scott Gottlieb former FDA director, you know, commissioner said that also, you know, and then I got in, you know, I mean, so I'm just like, where does this stuff come from? And I feel like, well, actually there is a story and it's not the fake one about a paper from a kid and her father or whatever it was that was put out there in, in the media. It was that um, Robert Redfield, who was the director of the CDC said that one day he was talking with colleagues in an elevator at the CDC and they were discussing 
whether to do social distancing. And they said, well, why don't we pick a rule? Why don't we pick a distance? Okay, we'll pick six feet. I don't know. What do they think? Three is too little and 12 is too many. I don't know. But anyway, they kind of whipped it up on the spot as something that was plausible for them with no scientific evidence. And that's how that was what he said as how it came about. Well, you know what? And I, and again, like, you know, hey, let's just pick something and kind of, but we should have just been told that. We were told this thing as if there was somehow like, like some math, you know, some sort of algorithmic math behind it, you know? And I feel right. like that's how so much of the pandemic was done. And we weren't told, we were never sat down and told like, hey guys, we don't really know what's going on. I, this is what we think we're going to try. This is what, this is our best bet based on the evidence we have right now. This is what we're going to do. I, we want us to all move in the same direction. And let's try to figure that out. We were never told this stuff. We were told this is what's happening. Anyone disagrees is anti-science. That's what happened for four years. And it's still going on to some degree right now. Where you're being called anti-science. Oh, anti that, that's right. That's right. That's right. Because those people know that they can't defend the so-called science of, of what all the policies were. And the only way they can defend it is by censoring. This is the whole thing about censoring. When somebody censors you, it means you know they've lost the argument. That right. if they had the ability to argue back, they would do that. But since they don't, all the only tool they have left is to censor. So the censorship only, is an admission of failure. The other thing that they'll do too is, I don't know if you picked up on this, I think the latest, the one that I think really made this clear to me was Peter Hotez, and he was invited you know, onto Joe Rogan to debate you know, and uh, fine, you know, like I, 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 you know, I know RFK Jr. I've talked to him on the phone before about things, you know, uh, you know, and I don't agree with everything he says, you know, some of this stuff I think is like very smart. Some of the stuff I'm like, ah, I don't know about this, Bobby, you know, but, you know, I mean, he's not like, he's not, he's not, he's not the crazy guy that they say he is. He's not that guy. He's a person who's very rational, who, when he first walked me through all the ideas he had about, you know, vaccines causing problems, I just told him at the end. about Kennedy. That's right. Kennedy, I agree yeah. You. Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. Kennedy. I was like, I told him, I said, Bobby, I think what you're seeing is you're finding causation when there's correlation. You know, a lot of things have changed that these vaccines have come online. You know, I'm not saying you're wrong, but like, I don't think there's the evidence that you, that you see is there. I think what we need is like, you know, more testing. And I think one of the things that I think needs to happen in America is, I think when these vaccines get approved, I think we need to require these corporations that time to make all their data public for outside review by other experts, not just what the pharma companies did to review their data, but let other people look at it. You know, it's approved yeah. now, it's on the market, you're selling it, we want to see your data now. That's, you know, working in the Senate, if I had, if, if I had done one thing besides making payments to doctors public, I would have I would have pushed for a law to require that when it when a product is approved by the FDA and I don't care if it's a vaccine, you know, a small molecule, whatever medical device at the time of approval, all data that was submitted to the FDA as part of the approval process needs to be made public for outside review so that other experts can go and look through that data themselves, because this has been such a problem, you know, where we're always finding out problems years later after products on the market. Well, I agree with you. I, I think data transparency is hugely important. Um, and I think that the, the issues about um, trade secrets could be managed somehow reasonably that that wouldn't have to be infringed in order to do that. So I think that I agree with you. I think that this is something that that should desperately be done because these things, the data are leaking out, you know, with FOIA laws and so on and and we're getting to it and we're finding all the malfeasance but some of the things were obvious 
that um, the misclassification of serious adverse events as non-serious, that is, is a, um, it's probably a criminal act in, in, in uh, you know, in, in vaccine or, or, or drug approval. But that certainly went on and it probably went on wholesale. Um, the, the main problem, of course, is the studies were crap to start with. And the vaccine studies in particular were not large enough nearly because having eight people in the drug in the vaccine group as outcome events is not randomized. It's not big enough. The, the size of a study is not the number of subjects that you put into it. It's the number of events that come out of it. And I'll tell you this, one thing. One thing that I think really stuns me looking back on this is, you know, going up in, into 2020, right? Because I've spent so much time looking into corruption at the FDA, uncovering corruption in different products, you know, when, when you know, we had these, you know, Moderna and um, we had Moderna, we had Pfizer. I don't know if Johnson & Johnson was, you know, in the, I can't remember at that time, but I got calls from three professors at top schools in America, right? I'm not saying any names because it's private conversations, but three different professors who called me up. And in the process, like we were just having a normal conversation. Um, they asked me, like, what do you think about these vaccines? And what I told them was, I said, look, this Pfizer thing says 95%. I think the Moderna says 80 something or whatever. I don't believe those numbers. Um, they, you know, I think those are cooked up numbers. You know, like they, 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 these are the numbers that they were able to get. The best numbers that they could get. The thing I can tell you about any product that's ever gotten on the market that's FDA approved we always find out that efficacy is lower than we originally told, side effects are higher than we originally told, and the price is always higher. And so I don't care whether it's Moderna, Pfizer. I, I think there's probably enough, like, because this one person now told me, like, they could get one or the other. I was like, I would not spend a lot of time thinking about it. I mean, just what whatever you're going to get, get, you know, like, I don't, I doubt there's much difference in those two. But, you know, and then what's funny is so like they told me their private concerns. They were all three very concerned, right, about these enough to where they would ask me questions, you know, to ask, you know, what what do you think? I never saw any three of them tweet anything negative about the vaccines. It was just understood that if you are an academic, you don't say anything negative. You don't ask questions or do anything about these vaccines. It's just well, it's not what not when your university is getting forty million dollars in grants from pharma from those very companies. Right, right, right. But also, there's something weird about vaccines, Harvey. I don't know if you picked up on this, but like, and I, what, it took me a while to realize this. You know, um, it's like you can ask questions about you know a, a, a pharmaceutical. You can question the safety of a medical device, but if you question anything about a vaccine, you're an anti-vaxxer. Like, is, if, if you say, like, I think these antidepressants might be causing, you know, these adverse events, but does anyone call you anti-pharma? No. If you say that, like, I think that this particular knee device is not that good, it's like, you're anti-medical device? No. But we have this ready-made label, anti-vaxxer, that is deployed constantly and repetitively about, about anyone and anyone, even on issues when it's not a vaccine. Like there can be situations you ask questions about some other product. It's like, well, what's your what's your perspective on vaccines? It's like, wait, what? How are we talking about vaccines? <laughs> and what are you now and when how when did you stop beating your wife and are you yeah, a racist? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are you also are you also an anti-vaxxer? You know, it's right. like, wait, what? You know, did you vote for Trump? And you're like, wait, what? Like, I don't even vote. Like, what? Wait, no. <laughs> you know, right, it's, right, and right. These, these, this is this is the smear used as a message of, of discrediting an adversary that you can't debate on on scientific grounds. 
It's, it's have part you seen of it? censorship. Have you ever seen it this bad before in your career? I mean, tobacco. Fairness now. I mean, have you seen it like this ever? Like, can you point to me? So, like, oh, Paul, back in the seventies, we had this thing of. I mean, to me, it seems very unique. You know what's going on? I agree on? with you that that it's very in, inflamed today. That that it characterizes a lot of the environment. I think that I got my start in public health uh, after med school in being in the anti-tobacco wars and i'm an anti-tobaccoist so um uh, but that hasn't crippled my academic career or anything else um and i say that because we, we're still living with the the damage of tobacco people think that the so french people are saying the vaccines were created to to kill people and i'm saying there's no rational evidence for that as damaging as they are there's no rational evidence for that intent and and tobacco, on the other hand, we tobacco, cigarette smoking causes half a million deaths per year in the United States. 500,000 right. people year in, year out die every year in the United States. Those people die on average 10 years earlier than they would have otherwise. They're at times when they're be collecting Social Security. The average Social Security payout now is about $22,000, but let's say $20,000 per year. So you multiply $20,000 times 500,000 people, times 10 years, you get $100 billion a year that our federal government is saving on not paying Social Security. Every member of Congress knows that. There has never been any substantial uh, effect to do anything about the tobacco deaths problem. And we as a society take 500,000 deaths per year from that in stride without even talking about it. Why are we concerned about 10 or 30,000 deaths from COVID or about 10,000 deaths from the flu or, or 50,000 deaths or 90,000 deaths from, from drugs or, or you know any of these things because there are orders of magnitude smaller than what we take in stride from tobacco. And, and yet that we have been so corrupted in our values to think that tobacco is okay to do when used precisely as the tobacco is meant to be used Right, 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 you know, right, right, and, right. And 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 these vaccines, which are largely unnecessary and have been damaging, you know, are still small potatoes. And COVID itself is small potatoes today compared to all this other stuff. Well, unfortunately, I'd love to continue this, but we're actually got to out of time for today. So I hope everybody's enjoyed our discussion. If you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. Paul, thank you. This was really great discussions. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and please come back again next week.